0: Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 144 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Oh, hi. Oh, hello, everybody.
1: Good to hear you.
0: Happy podcast day.
1: It is. It's a special
2: day that only happens every two weeks. (laughs) Sometimes more often if we mess up.
0: Exactly. What gifts did you
3: guys get me for podcast day?
0: I got you this Diet Coke can. Oh, okay.
1: I got you a fridge that doesn't make any noise. Oh, That That would actually be a very useful (laughs) (laughs) podcast day.
0: Um, Guys, I discovered, you know, a life hack, which maybe I've shared before, but it's really given me a lot of joy, which is I've really been into puzzles lately. I've been watching my Mm. YouTube, Karen Puzzles, like she's tackling a 24,000 piece puzzle right now. It's like really tense.
2: What is going to be the final dimensions on that 24,000 piece puzzle?
0: It's really big. She said that she's going to have to assemble it outside of her apartment because it's too I big. I was
2: literally going to make a joke that she was going to do it in yep. the garage next to her apartment or whatever. But wow.
0: Probably on the street or something. Somebody's <laughs> you driveway. You said the roof. The I roof.
2: <laughs> on the helipad. Karen Puzzles <laughs> is freaking loaded.
0: She's crazy. But anyway, so I've been really into puzzles, but I also had to read a book for the podcast. So guys, life hack. Listen to, listen to the audiobook and, and do a puzzle at the same time. Oh,
2: yeah. I mean, does that qualify? What the, what's the cutoff for life hack? And <laughs> below that is just idea.
0: <laughs> I guess it's it. I feel weird about listening to the audiobook when I have the physical book because mm. it's like, well, what, why are you doing that? But in this case, I liked it because I could hear also like the accent and that kind of thing from the narrator. But you know, I listened to the book real quick, did three puzzles and three nights.
2: Yeah, our Instagram is loving it. You know, every time that you put something puzzle related on the Instagram, I'm reminded how many of our listeners like puzzles. I don't even
0: think they're listeners. I think that we just have a following on Instagram <laughs> that just likes the puzzle pictures. The Venn
2: diagram is just two separate circles. <laughs> all the puzzle people are like, "I hate reading, but all oh, the puzzle content on this one is so good." If
0: you are listening and you are both a puzzler and a reader, like you should comment with a secret word so we know that you're in the middle of that Venn diagram.
2: What's the secret are you gonna be
0: i don't know what do you think
2: is there like a puzzle specific like is there like a weird word for like a certain shape of puzzle piece
0: well there's like nub like the- <laughs> yeah just write
1: nub a bunch <laughs> nub.
0: <laughs> what about edge edge piece like i'm feeling edgy
1: i kind of like nub better <laughs> tweet pictures of the edge the wrestler at us and we'll know what you mean or from you too the guitarist
3: oh yeah yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, him too. To be fair, I listen to like 50% of Pimp while playing video games like this. It is a very weird book to passively listen to, but it's one of those things where it's like, you kind of want to play the game to listen to the audiobook to play the game. So what? they start getting married in your mind.
0: Oh, oh, kind of like you want to put together a puzzle so you can listen to the book? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, I've done. I've managed to do that with dishes in my house. I allow myself to listen to whatever when I'm doing the dishes. So I'll be like, I want to listen to The Adventure Zone for the fifth time through. I'll... <laughs>
3: So you that's, just make more dirty dishes to
2: more. That's actually pulled from real life, listeners. I'm real way behind on my Goodreads goal
1: for this year.
0: <laughs> the only way I can get through doing the dishes is I let myself watch The Bachelor or listen to a Bachelor recap podcast. So nice, that's my life.
1: I go on walks so that I can listen to podcasts because I'm productive. I, I thought you were
3: going to say I go on walks to wash the dishes.
1: <laughs> I go on walks to watch The Bachelor. Yeah, <laughs> The Bachelor to me is a, a performance art piece that happens in Prospect Park. That I'm just
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're just handing Assuming out roses. You're just <laughs> yeah, handing out exactly. roses to people. <laughs> Do will you accept this rose, I guess?
1: <laughs> no, it's COVID. <laughs> no, it's a pandemic. <laughs> Don't give me things.
0: Uh, speaking of pandemic, you know, and binge buying, um, I heard that somebody might have a little bit of shame.
1: Yes, I do have shame. This is another thing that I attach to taking walks. I walk past this bookstore called Greenlight books, um, near bam, and they have a really easy way of pre-ordering books. So I will do this big loop of prospect park, come back down by bam. And then just, there's a book waiting for me. So why Ooh. not do it way too much? But yes, I bought one book since our last record, it was recommended to me from a soccer podcast, uh, called men in blazers. Um, <laughs> (laughs) And also I've been seeing it weirdly on the Twitter sphere a lot because it's and why that's weird is that it's a big old history book and it's called Children of Ash and Elm, A History of the Vikings by Neil Price. It is not the second book in the Legacy of Orisha series, but no, it, he's an archaeologist who's written this book about Vikings because they don't have a lot of written source material as one might imagine. And it's supposed to be amazing. And I'm very much looking forward to cracking into it. We'll see if that's going to be on the podcast or if I save this one from my little secret times.
0: <laughs> little oh. secret <laughs> times. I have a book that I've started in my little secret times.
1: Ha <laughs> Ooh.
0: Ooh. it feels it feels like i'm you know doing extra credit i started uh burn our bodies down by a friend of the podcast rory power huh. um and it's Ooh. interesting it's very like i was reading about reading rory's instagram and she was saying that like she wanted people to just be totally like confused by it but then also like wowed and astounded at the end and i'm kind of getting there it's, it's sort of like a puzzle box of a book so i'm bringing it. it all together mm-hmm. puzzle box book
1: indeed and also plug for rory's instagram she has some great uh, specifically, cat content with her yeah. cat Scallion.
3: Doesn't every author want people to be wowed and amazed by their endings?
2: Wow, Dylan, we just finished praising her, and <laughs> this is the time you would choose to dunk.
0: I think I'm not dunking. I'm saying like Scallion is a great name for a cat.
2: Yeah, it yeah, is. it would be a better name
1: for a horse.
0: What? Because it's like stallion. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. Scallion the stallion.
1: Scallion the stallion. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Toby! Megan the Stallion should get a stallion named Scallion.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Megan the Scallion—that should be like, Meghan like on Veggie Tales. She's like, she's on. a green onion.
2: <laughs> that would be an amazing episode of Veggie Tales <laughs> <laughs> where they
1: invite. Which Bible story would that be? <laughs> oh my God, guys! They have Cardi Beats. <laughs>
0: Cardi oh, Beats, yes. Good one. Now I'm trying to think of more rappers. No, stop. Jennifer
2: Low Potatoes.
3: Nikki Spinach. <laughs> Ooh,
0: that's Ooh, a good one. Good one. All right, guys, check it out. <laughs> Andrew read a book this week from his list. This book, I'm kind of interested to hear how he's going to keep it, you know, family friendly on the podcast. But this book is called, no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Andrew, take it away. What book did you read?
1: I read a book called Pimp, The Story of My Life by Iceberg Slim.
2: Yeah, and full transparency, uh, I think Dylan also read it. Yep. And I made it halfway through. I'm still reading it right now. So we have uh, some different experiences of the book.
0: Dylan had it on his to read shelf. And so I think Thursday night I was like, hey, remember how Andrew's going to review that book? And he's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I should read it. And he read it in several hours. He's very fast. <laughs> anyway, but this is not about Dylan. This is about Andrew.
1: Well, I'm curious to hear what Dylan says, but I also want to underline the point that this is not about Dylan. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I know that's the tagline of this podcast.
1: <laughs> the to read list, not the
2: story of my life. <laughs> by Dylan Magrin Wells.
1: Um, so yeah, no, it is going to be a little bit of a challenge to review this book and talk about it without losing our clean tag on Apple podcasts, but I'm going to do it. I'm not even going to say I'm going to try. I'm going to say that I'm going to do it. And here it is. This is sort of a summary about the book. Pimp is Iceberg Slim's account of his life as a hustler and pimp in America, spanning the 1930s to nearly 1960s. It's a fascinating window into a world which has a lot of stereotypes and assumptions around it, but few firsthand accounts until this book. Looking back on his life with distance, Slim presents his deeds and misdeeds, frankly, and the audience is left torn between the undeniable struggles in the narrator's life and the horrendous pain his actions caused.
0: I didn't realize it took place like in the 30s through the 60s.
1: Yeah, that's part of what makes this book really interesting is that it's way earlier than I thought. I had assumed just from like uh, my understanding of the book, not having read it yet, that it was like a 70s story. And I think part of that is this book came out and then influenced a lot of things that came after it, which is maybe that 70s pimp stereotype. Yeah, Yeah, like
0: the show The Deuce, one of the characters based himself on the book. And that's the 70s, I think. Yeah,
3: there, oh. There'll be parts in this book where, like, you'll hear the most graphic, like, drug and sex use. And then they'll say, like, and all the background, Ella Fitzgerald was playing. Yeah. It's like, wait, what? This is <laughs> the
2: 30s. <laughs> he he name drops Mood Indigo by Duke Ellington, like, lot. 10 times. Yeah.
1: That song was playing everywhere, apparently. <laughs> yeah, there were, like, three songs.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to tease a little bit of my research, uh, because it directly applies to this book came out in 1967. Um, and from my research, it was very popular at its release and a rash of imitators came directly after. So before this, not too many first time accounts of his exact life. After it, lots of imitations.
0: Interesting.
1: But yeah, so this book is an odd little thing. So to give you a little more context, basically the the framing device of the book is we get an intro from Iceberg Slim about uh, that sort of drops you in Meteor Race to when he is a successful like rich pimp. And then we get his sort of attempted absolution in the forward. Mm-hmm. And then we get the story of his life and then an epilogue, which is another like little wrap up piece. So you're mostly just getting sort of a pretty direct account of what's going on without a lot of analysis or a lot of reflection. And I think partially that it's to its strength because if you had to read a version of this book where the whole time he was hedging like, I'm so sorry I did this, Mm -hmm. and like was trying to like look for forgiveness throughout the entire book, I think it would be a different experience and I think it would be a worse experience. But when we get to maybe my orcs, I can talk about why that's hard still in the format that it's in to really enjoy parts of the book. But to that end, let's go into some elves and orcs here on this little book. A big uh, point in its favor is that it is a really gripping book. Um, It really propels you forward. It doesn't surprise me that Dylan was able to read the book in a short amount of time. On my part, mostly through negligence, I started this book very late. So I also read the book in like a day and a half, but (laughs) sort of not because I had forgotten to start it because I had every intention to start it and then just kept procrastinating. (laughs) Um, But it wasn't actually a struggle to read it in that amount of time I finished with plenty of time, I wasn't reading like dawn to dusk the one day I had to finish it. It it was it went by pretty quickly, which is remarkable for the heaviness of subject matter and also for a book of that time, which just in general, non-contemporary stories tend to be a little harder for me to get through quickly. And part of why I think that is, is that Iceberg Slim is a very strong writer who has a certain clarity to his writing, especially around the sort of bad things that he did because he presents them very frankly and doesn't hedge around it and doesn't dance around things. It just moves forward quickly. It just is like, boom, this is a paragraph. This is what happened. Boom, 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 boom. Even though the things that are happening are shocking to the nth degree, it has a certain um, forward momentum to it that allows you to read things that are very hard very quickly. Hmm, sounds good. Is that your experience of it, uh, Dylan or and or Toby?
3: Yeah, I think a lot of it, and I'm sure you want to get more into this during the orcs, but like the idea that he doesn't put himself in the present mindset, looking back, it's more just, this is what I was thinking at the time, this is why I did it.
2: Yeah, well, and I, as soon as I started it, like that little, I think you could almost, if you're curious about this book, but you're nervous it will disturb you, you could almost just read the foreword and that one scene will give you the whole yeah. book because <laughs> he's doing awful things, but he's a masterful storyteller. Like he understands suspense and control and drama. And uh, and you just really do get a sense, like he he's a really good writer
3: also he's ridiculously good at metaphors right? yeah
2: yeah he, and he uses incredibly colorful language uh, throughout the whole thing
3: because there's a he says it kind of as a joke up top that one of the times he's arrested he has to take an iq test that yeah. he's 175 he's like a 175 iq and at first i thought it's like oh he because he brags about himself a lot yeah but it's like oh maybe he actually is that smart mm, well research research coming yep Uh-oh. i hope so
1: It's a memoir that he's changed names and he's changed probably some circumstances. So you don't know if everything that he's saying is like entirely 100% true. Mm -hmm. But some of the things that go on are like downright ripped from what feels like a spy novel. Yeah. Like there's, yeah. I I don't really want to spoil it in case you're interested in reading it. But like there's some wild scams and like schemes he, he executes that are not so Andrew did you feel
2: like um that was a question I had for you overall maybe you're gonna address this but I found myself wondering like you know how true things are and from my personal experience I feel like I feel like he's mostly telling the truth like maybe with some dramatic embellishments here and there but it seems to have the ring of truth to me was that your impression
1: yeah I mean I think like any m- memoir it is probably mostly true and then things are maybe streamlined for narrative ease mm-hmm. or like I know I know from just a note in my my copy of the book that names were changed and yeah. people were sort of combined into single characters that might have been multiple people but yeah i think i i got the impression that he was telling the truth
0: as dylan was reading it he described you know, sort of the day in the life of a pimp and that like most of the time is spent playing mind games. Was that, you? I yeah. thought that, that was unexpected. Yeah. But it reminds me of when you're talking about like a spy novel. I'm like, what, what is he up to?
1: Yeah. It's sort of like a one person spy novel where it's all sort of within his own head and he's concocting these wild uh, scenarios and then he somehow makes them work. Huh? But yes, it, it, a lot of mind games. One last sort of elf I want to throw in is is sort of a, as a time capsule, a really interesting view of the sort of inherent evils of America, especially around mm. race. And it deals with those things really directly and sort of the the shattering out of that original sin and like seeing the ripple effects as the glass breaks around it. I thought that that, so it functions sort of as an inho- important historical piece. And so that was an interesting angle to approach it from.
3: The original PIMP manual? Yes. Basically, basically there's a section where he talks to an elder pimp and he describes there's the, the guy with the ocelot yes. I just got to that guy. A, yeah and that guy did have an ocelot. I yep, looked at this cuz I was curious. Yep. But uh he describes the unwritten book of pimping and he ties it all the way back to slavery. Mm, and I like was. how pimps were the first like uh people to kind of like ascend into in society to right mm. after they were all freed. And it was really interesting how cuz yeah like you're saying the 1930s it seems that it could take place between the 30s and the 70s. And it mm-hmm. makes you realize like how living at this edge of society, like they really were like kind of not cutting edge, but because they were so far deep into crime, they were trying to not only break into white society, but create their own.
2: Mm mm-hmm. And then just so we don't leave this thread dangling, he learns pimping from a pimp in Chicago who has a, this is a real person, a real historical figure uh, who had an ocelot with a jeweled collar and he had a Dusendorf car, which was like this crazy imported car.
1: And to be clear, at least in the book, that ocelot's name is Miss Peaches. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. So, all that said, let's pivot a little bit to the cons and the the orcs of this book. I basically just have one, maybe two that are sort of attached. And it's it's a hard book. There are hard things in it. There are disgusting acts like upsetting language um a fundamental sort of generic vileness mm-hmm. to a lot of what goes on and so especially to modern audiences it's jarring i'm sure it was jarring to people who read it at the time too don't get me wrong i'm sure just people in the se- 60s and 70s would also have been shocked by it but like An there's an extra layer of sort of dissonance we have reading it 60 years later. Yeah, and so that makes for sort of a sourish experience for me in terms of getting to know Iceberg Slim as he's the person who's presenting the story. And then when you're getting bombarded by all this sort of upsetting language and upsetting acts, that's tough. And all that sort of feeds into my central orc and my central sort of problem with the book, which turns into a pretty big problem, which is that I don't know if it accomplishes what everyone who I read on Goodreads who rated it five stars seems to think that it does, which is I don't think that Slim does enough for the reader to make us see how he changes and to make us see his epiphanies and to make us see that he recognizes the horrendousness of what he's done. It reads more like a chronology, but bookends that chronology of sort of awful stuff with these two sort of like moments where he's putting a lot on the audience to assume that he has changed. Mm-hmm. Like I just I just don't know that his intro and the sort of way the book ends gives us enough to be like, okay, yeah, you've completely changed your your mind, you've completely turned your leaf, you are incredibly sorry for what you've done. I would like to believe that he is those things, but just this book presented to me, I didn't quite feel that it did that. Yeah. And at its worst, it sort of feels like he was just sort of trying to get boxes checked to for like absolution or like forgiveness. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm going to tell you all this sordid stuff, but don't worry, you'll forgive me because I've included these two sections. And I again, I don't know that that's the case. And I think that he, his life is bigger than just this book. And, you know, so who, who am I to, to judge? But I couldn't say just from reading this book that he had completely changed and was necessarily suitably punished for for the pain he caused. And when he's your only view into this and you have that feeling about him, it becomes tough to really fall in love with the book.
0: Mm hmm. I was just going to say that from what Dylan explained, the reason why he stopped pimping, you know, made me kind of think that maybe he didn't feel as, I know, maybe I can't say that because that's a
2: spoiler. Basically, Uh he just felt he got too old.
0: Uh, no, I mean, he went to prison, no?
2: Yeah. I mean, from my research as well, the the indications were he went to prison, he didn't like going to prison again, but also he just felt like, you know, the competition is fierce and there's guys who are there who are 19, 20 years
1: old and he just can't, you know,
0: he right. couldn't outsmart yeah. them anymore. So that to me doesn't show a lot of self-reflection. It's just kind of like...
1: Yeah, it feels like he's taking it for granted that you'll just assume that he's had these major life epiphanies.
2: You know, what's funny, Andrew, is that you... We're thinking about it in terms of, like, him changing. I kept thinking about it as the publisher giving us the okay to read it. Mm. Right? Like, because that you're right like the the things that happen in this are so unspeakable and it's one of the darkest books i've ever read in my life and it's to the point at you know where you start to question like oh like is it what am i getting out of the? you know is this okay to read and sometimes it does feel like maybe the publisher maybe Icebergsum himself is like oh no, don't worry like it's all good now like not necessarily because i've changed but because this book is uh warning you about a truth in the world or in, in the intro he says i'm hoping to convince people not to go down the path that i did um and while it certainly doesn't seem like an you know, an easy path to go down, as Andrew says, there are parts of it that are exciting and thrilling and he gets, you know, he gets it over on people and you can see that he gains pleasure from that. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's difficult.
3: Yeah, because one thing I wanted to talk about it was I, uh, I need a. Find the exact essay, but I was reading a lot when The Irishman came out that was kind of like Scorsese atoning for um because he always said, like, you know, Oh, I'm making gangster movies about like real gangsters, but it shows like the dark underside and it's like movies like Goodfellas and Mean Streets. Yeah, it shows in like the last five minutes, it's bad, but like the other two hours, it shows how great being a gangster is. Yeah. And Irishman, it's a very long movie. And the last third is literally like, not only is it bad, you kinda end up pathetic, but mm-hmm. Is that enough to dissuade people from showing that the other part of it wasn't glamorous at the time?
2: Yeah, well, it's like, you know, the classic of, like, bros who watch Scarface. And are like, yeah. oh,
3: yeah, I want to be like Scarface. And you're like, did you watch that movie? Well, I kept thinking of Wolf of Wall Street, too. And I can totally imagine how people reading this book where it's like, oh, man, being a pimp seems like such a great thing. I mean, I have to, like, make sure I get out before the ending. but, mm-hmm. um, And there were flashes of that at the end when he kind of meets all these pimps and you see what happened to them at the end of their lives and how, like, sad and broken it is. But they don't spend a lot of time addressing it
1: yeah it might have just been like it might have improved my reading if the book was 50 pages longer and we had 50 more pages about sort of the the negative aspects and why he feels bad about what he's done (laughs) because that would have like balanced it better for me i don't know
3: and we said that he's not making excuses for it but he does he leaves a lot for like
2: armchair psychiatrists which to be fair does make it a better book yeah like his his kind of vulnerability and his directness of like showing the interior of his mind makes it much more compelling.
3: Yeah. I think the best chapters are the ones where he is scared and Mm -hmm. he is like realizing how over his head he is. And especially since it goes up against his persona, the reason Mm -hmm. he's called Iceberg Slim is because he doesn't show emotions to anybody and everyone assumes that he's cool all the time. But reading the book, you can tell that he was like thinking and worrying a lot. Like being a pimp is very anxious.
1: So yeah, if you can't tell from how we're talking about this book, it's complicated and complex and stirs a lot of different thoughts in your brain Mm -hmm. and leaves you sort of not knowing how to feel about it ultimately i came to this in terms of a rating i gave it three stars Mm, fair i early on in the book i was gearing towards four and again it it is so interesting and such a a a compelling read but it just sort of fell flat at the end for me and that falling flat made me question how i felt about the earlier parts of the book so ultimately it went down to a three I will keep it on my shelf because I'm interested to maybe check it out again in the future. And also it was a gift from, as I mentioned on the last podcast when we announced this, a gift from my friend Agnes Barinski, whose book Sasha Masha just came out. So check that out. I am gonna keep it for sentimental reasons as well. Um, but what did y'all think? What what I know, Toby, you haven't finished it yet, but but Dylan, what what would you give it Star Wise? Uh
3: yeah, no, I it's funny because I, I kind of fell on that same fence too, where it's like he doesn't redemption almost comes too easy and doesn't. that's the one thing he doesn't dive into. So I was on the fence between three and four. I decided to go four stars just because of skill of writing, but also because he does give a lot of scenes and information, although he, he doesn't explicitly say it, where it's like, what I did is terrible and this is really sad that this all had to happen. He does present the information that if the reader is looking for it, it's there. So I think it puts a lot of work on the reader to kind of have to morally bend with the book where it should be the author, but um, at least he included those. Because if he didn't include mm-hmm. scenes where he he could have very easily painted himself off as like, all these other pimps are terrible. I'm not a terrible pimp, though. Because yeah. he paints himself very clearly like, I'm also a very terrible pimp. I do just as bad things to these women as mm-hmm. everyone else. And even though I'm not saying that, like, I feel bad about it, I, I also am not hiding it.
1: Yeah. And no, that's fair. I, I, honestly, I think one person rating it three and one person rating it four is a pretty accurate representation of how I felt about the book because I was very much wavering on my on my stars.
0: Cool. Well, Pimp by Iceberg Slam, three, four, three, four. Three, four. Three, four. <laughs> um, I am really interested to know, to know more about, you know, how this book came about. So, Toby, do you have any facts?
2: I do have some facts. Robert Beck. <gasps> his name's not Iceberg Slam. Oh. <gasps> Um, he was bor- born Robert Lee Maupin or Robert Maupins Jr. It's that kind of old timey thing where everyone had like three or four names. Mm-hmm. No one's really sure. He was born on August 4th, 1918, and he died on April 30th, 1992. Since we talked a little bit about his circumstances and also because a lot of the pleasure of reading the book is kind of finding out about, finding out about his life. I'm going to give you some scattered facts about his life, but mostly it's going to be about kind of him writing the book and then afterwards. Cool. Because if you want to know about his life.
3: Read the book. Nothing really happened between 1930 and 1960
2: for him. Yeah. Yeah. So this is... So in 1961, after serving 10 months of solitary confinement in a Cook County jail, he decided he was too old for the life of pimping and was unable to compete with younger, more ruthless pimps and quit the life. He ended up writing this book. Um, he got married um, to a woman named Betty May Shue, um, and he was living kind of a straight life in Los Angeles in the early to mid-60s. And he basically kept speaking about his old life. His wife was kind of aware of who he had been, and she was the one who encouraged him and helped him write the book.
0: Well, that's good. But it could have been much worse where she's like, honey, what you writing about? It's like, nothing.
2: <laughs> so a little bit about the process of writing the book. Uh, it turns out that many of his friends, kind of his conspirators and co-criminals were still alive when he wrote the book. So as we've mentioned, he's changed all of their names and descriptions. Baby Bell, who was the guy with the ocelot, became Sweet Jones. So the, his original name was Baby Bell. Uh, his best friend Satin became Glass Top. And those are the only two names that I was able to find in their original context. Those are the two men. So when the book came out, um, the reviews were of very very mixed um he got a lot of cachet and a fair amount of people wanted to shelve his book next to things like soul on ice the autobiography of malcolm x but his vision um was much bleaker and more grim than these books which are very grim books but his is i think a, a whole a whole lot darker a whole lot more or less hopeful uh, picture of humanity um here's a fun fact before i get into an article in 1976 he released an album a recorded musical album called reflections in which he recited passages from his autobiography over a funky musical backing supplied by the red Holloway quartet Mm, supposed to be pretty good. Um, so the rest of these um, are from a really interesting article. If you're intrigued by this, I would definitely go read it. It's from a New Yorker article called The Fires That Forged Iceberg Slim. It's written by the author's name is Robin D.G. Kelly. So the rest of these are quotes. They're uh, snippets from the article. Beck's oft quoted claim of having an IQ of 175 was false. And that iceberg was just a nom de plume that Beck invented while writing pimp. His actual street name was Cavanaugh Slim. Having con, cajoled and terrorized his way through the underworld, Beck ironically proved to be the perfect mark for Holloway House, his longtime publisher, whose minuscule royalty checks never matched their extraordinary sales figures. Just as an aside, this book did sell and has sold incredibly well. Uh, he never really saw his fair cut of the sh- of anything.
3: You think it'd be better making deals? I'm kind of upset about the iceberg thing, though, because they go a lot into, like,
0: that name. Nope. Kavanaugh Slim. Okay, that's weird.
2: So this is back to the article. When Beck first decided to write his story, he was working as an exterminator and living in South Los Angeles with a young white woman named Betty May Shue, her toddler son, and their newborn daughter. It was Betty who proposed committing Beck's stories to paper, Betty who found the publisher, and Betty who transcribed and typed Beck's manuscripts. And it was around this time that the Watts Rebellion in August of 1965 shook Beck to his core. His initial fears for his family's safety gave way to an appreciation for the new mood in the community. Former gang members joined political organizations like the Sons of Watts, and later the Black Panther Party. Amid a veritable cultural revolution, the autobiography of Malcolm X appeared in print just months after Malcolm's murder. Beck said that he modeled his own memoir on the autobiography of Malcolm X. Telling one interviewer years later, Malcolm X defined the atrocity that Pimpin is. By the end of the 1960s, Beck had developed a reputation as a public intellectual, even as he continued to struggle financially. A popular lecturer, he spoke on topics ranging from the sex trade to the history of the Puritans, sounding more like a young black militant than an aging ex-pimp. In a lecture at Chicago's Malcolm X College, Beck told the students, quote, "...when you exploit your own kind, you are, in effect, a counter-revolutionary." Close quote. Not surprisingly, Beck praised the Black Panthers in spite of the contempt local members showed him. And that was kind of a theme uh, throughout the rest of his life as he kind of wanted to join this movement, uh, the leaders of which wanted nothing to do with him. Just pretty sad. This is back from the article. Beck understood that writing was a form of entertainment and a hustle as well as a political act. Even as he flirted with the Panthers and swapped his nightmares for revolutionary dreams, he knew that his greatest commodity was his street cred, and he pimped it, even as he disavowed it. This ambivalence kept him from leaping headlong into the movement, but it also mirrored the urban proletariat's love-hate relationship with a laissez-faire capitalism that rewards and celebrates those who obtain wealth by any means necessary. It can be hard to listen to lectures from characters who flash bulging money clips and diamond-studded teeth.
0: That's kind of what you guys were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: Complicated guy. He ended up getting a movie made out of one of his books, but again, got shafted on that deal. Just, you know, a hard life.
0: So he continued writing there more than... Mm-hmm.
2: He's thing. written, I think, four or five books.
0: Okay.
3: Yeah. I actually saw the trailer for it. I kind of want to see the movie now based on his book. It's called Trick Baby.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. The rest of his books tended to be more political in nature, but none of them ever sold nearly as well as Pimp.
0: Well, great facts. Um, an Thank in- you. Interesting discussion, guys. Um,
2: Bailey, did you read something this week?
0: You know I did.
2: Whoa
3: it's well toby you sure are a detective
2: am i the number one man detective (laughs) in los angeles no that's monk (laughs) i was gonna say it also sounds in san francisco but still (laughs) it also sounds kind of salacious the number one man detective man
0: detective no so i read a book this week i read the number one ladies detective agency by alexander mccall smith um i have a lot of thoughts on this book it's interesting because I think this is one that a lot of people have read, particularly like moms in book clubs.
2: How dare you? I've read this
0: book. But, you know, I'm a mom in a book club, so, I mean.
3: I'll never be a mother. <laughs> <laughs> Just
0: like Pimp. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this book, for those of you who haven't heard of it, it's the first in a series. It's a cozy mystery, which means it's a mystery, but the stakes are aren't not very high. Um, and it's set in Botswana. The main character is Precious Ramotswe. She is the number one lady detective in Botswana, aka the only lady detective in Botswana.
2: A uh, quick question: How long? How many books do you think this series had in it? Ten. Trick question. It's still going. There's more than 20.
0: Whoa. Yeah. So the main character, maramotsue um, follows different mysteries in the town. She has people come and hire her, you know, to find out if their husbands are cheating or find out where their kid disappeared to, that sort of thing. And she solves them.
1: Let the record show finding where a kid disappeared to is not that low stakes.
0: I was going to say that's like some of the mysteries are more intense than others (laughs) um the so there's these little mysteries as you go and then there's an overarching mystery which is this missing boy that they keep returning to um so yeah that one is a bit more high stakes but then there's other ones that are like my husband got eaten by an alligator or did he (laughs) (laughs)
3: that's high stakes
0: too (laughs) so this is I, i guess that goes right into one of my Orcs.
2: Oh, wow. Straight into the orcs. I
0: know. I feel there are elves and orcs, but it just reminds me of one of the big orcs, which for me was some of the mysteries were a bit simple. I mean, obviously, that's the case with cozy mysteries, but it felt like the author, Alexander McCall Smith, who is, you know, African, but he's also white. He's the colonizer, is very much oversimplifying Black people in Africa. This is my perspective. So um, when Ma Way solves mysteries, sometimes it's like, would a person really solve the mystery in that way? Like. This is an example. A woman comes to her and says, I want to know if my husband is cheating. So Ma Ramotswe meets the husband and, you know, sleeps with him and then brings a picture. And she's like, see, he is a cheater. And then she's like, I don't understand why the lady got so mad at me. I showed that he was a cheater.
2: (laughs) Man, I forgot that part of the book.
0: (laughs) So like those kinds of things where it's like, "Mm, I don't know that that would really happen. Yeah, yeah. It feels a little bit like, okay, Alexander McCall Smith. And in general... (sighs) I think the author—I want to say the word—is exoticized. I don't know if that's mm. the word, but it's like, yeah. like, oh, but isn't this cool? Because it's set in Africa and it's different. Like on the back of my book, it literally says, "Forget the library; the body is in the mud hut." Superb.
2: Ooh, <laughs> ooh, boy.
0: That's that's a review. Um, and that
2: review written by Alexander McCall Smith. It
0: just says Sunday Times. It, it just feels very much like, isn't this crazy? Their their lives are so different than ours. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really just going into those orcs. So I'm just starting with yeah, the orcs. Yeah, sounds like
1: you... A- get them, Bailey, get them. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: I'm, so I'm going to read a quote that shows this. You guys tell me what you think. So this is page 160. <clears throat> there was a slight smell of wood smoke in the air, a smell that tugged at her heart because it reminded her of mornings around the fire in Mochote. She would go back there, she thought, when she had worked long enough to retire. She would buy a house or build one, perhaps, and ask some of her cousins to live with her. They would grow melons on the lands and might even buy a small shop in the village. And every morning she could sit in front of her house and sniff at the wood smoke and look forward to spending the day talking with their friends. How sorry she felt for white people who couldn't do any of this and who were always dashing around and worrying themselves over things that weren't going to happen anyway. What use was it having all that money if you could never sit still and just watch your cattle eating grass? None in her view, none at all, and yet they did not know it. Every so often you met a white person who understood, who realized how things really were. Those people were few and far between, and the other white people often treated them with suspicion. So like, because this is a white man writing it, it just feels like... I don't know. Another thing that brought it up for me is he continues, her, the character is fat and he continually talks about her in like very fat shaming ways. And like, I'm not a black African woman, but I am a fat woman. And I'm like, I would not talk to about myself that way. She's like, these pillows are so great for lounging as a fat person. And I'm like, what?
2: What? Yeah. I, just about that quote though, it's like, by saying, like, oh, most white people don't get it. There are some who get it. um It's like, wink well, wink. Yeah, like you're writing this woman. So clearly, you think you're one of the white people who gets it? Apparently, like
0: yeah, exactly. Go you. So, with all that said, so those are all the the orcs. But
1: the this is some big orcs.
0: These are big orcs. Yeah, I was gonna say solid orcs. So the elves, though, like. I, the book is structured very well. He does a good job of starting with a cute little mystery and then he goes back into Mara Motzwe's life and then we get mysteries, mysteries, mysteries. Then the overarching mystery concludes. Structured really well. The setting is interesting. I mean, especially when he's describing like what Africa looks like, like the, the landscape. And, you know, sometimes the mysteries are solved in clever ways. So those are all good, but I I couldn't lose myself in the good parts of the book because these big old orcs were just staring me in the face, and I just would rather a book about a detective agency in Botswana. I want to read that, but I want to read it written by an actual black fat woman in Botswana. But you know, people love this book. Moms and books book clubs love this book. I'm not sure, you know, what black people think of this book, but yeah, that's my that's my review. Overall, I gave it three stars.
2: I read this so long ago. I think I read it before I even had a Goodreads account. Mm-hmm. So I, but I think if you pressed me, I think I'd probably go three stars as well. Okay. Yeah. Very much your same experience as you, like the good parts were pretty good. Yeah. And then there are some parts where I was just like, huh? Eh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think especially nowadays, it's hard to just like, mm-hmm. you know, well, I'm just going to live in my privilege for a while. It's like, mm, let's let's examine this a little more so, kind of, yeah, three stars. Do you have any facts about Mr. Alexander McCall, Smith, Toby?
2: I do. Alexander Sandy McCall Smith
1: wasn't expecting that
2: (laughs) was born on the 24th of August 1948. He is a British Zimbabwean writer and emeritus professor of medical law at the University of Edinburgh. In the late 20th century, McCall Smith became a respected expert on medical law and bioethics and served on British and international committees concerned with these issues. Okay. I don't know why that cracked me up. He has since then become internationally known as a writer of fiction, with sales in the English language versions exceeding 40 million by 2010. So that stat is 10 years out of date. um, And it's been translated into 46 languages. Very, very, very successful. Alexander McCall Smith was born in Bulawayo in 1948 um, in the British colony of southern Rhodesia, which is present-day Zimbabwe, and he was the youngest of four children. His father worked as a public prosecutor in Bulawayo. Um, He was educated at the Christian Brothers College in Bulawayo before moving to Scotland at age 17 to study law at the University of Edinburgh, where he earned his L.L.B. and Ph.D. degrees. He taught at Queen's University Belfast, and while teaching there, he entered literary competition. He entered one children's book and another book for adults, and he won in the children's category. Hmm. Um... He is, this is shifting a little bit to fun facts. He is an amateur bassoonist, and he co-founded the Really Terrible Orchestra. That's the name of the orchestra. Uh, It was a project based on him being jealous of how much fun his kids were having in their school bands and how bad they were. So he was like, I'm bad at music. I'm going to get together with my friends and play silly instruments.
0: I feel bad for his kids. (laughs) Dad, what are you saying?
2: I'm starting a really terrible orchestra. It's based on you. (laughs) He helped to found Botswana's first center for opera training, the number one ladies' opera house.
0: Interesting title.
2: <laughs> um, in 2014, McCall Smith purchased the, the Cairns of Coal, a chain of uninhabited islets in the Hebrides. He said, quote, I intend to do absolutely nothing with them and to ensure that after I am gone, they are held in trust, unspoilt and uninhabited for the nation. I want them kept in perpetuity as a sanctuary for wildlife, for birds and seals and all the other creatures
1: to which they are home. Okay, Jonathan Franzen. (laughs) No, but that's a nice thing to do. That's actually great.
2: Um, He writes at an extremely prodigious rate. Um, There's a quote, even when he's traveling, he never loses a day, turning out between two and three thousand words a day, but more like five thousand words when at home in Edinburgh. It's a lot.
1: Yeah, that's too much, dog. (laughs) Before he
2: published the um, number one ladies detective agency, which is by far his most popular book and most popular series, he had published 30 books before he published this one. Wow. Um, So this is an interesting article I found. In the LA Times, this is one of our first fact articles pulled from during pandemic times. This is the LA Times um, had a series where they asked authors what they were up to during their isolation. So everything past here is actually McCall Smith's words. I took down from the shelf a book I'd forgotten I possessed, Abbot Christopher Jameson's Finding Sanctuary, Monastic Steps for Everyday Life. The reading of this has been a revelation. It is about inner peace, about stillness. It is just what I need to read now. I read almost half of it in a single sitting. Late to bed, well after my wife had retired and switched off for reading light, Edinburgh was quiet. I forgot to turn on the burglar alarm, but I imagine the burglars are all observing the Scottish government's advice not to leave the house and, if possible, to work at home.
0: How can you burgle at home?
2: Steal your own stuff. Yeah, steal your own stuff, man.
3: I'm starting to think from this book review and that, that he doesn't understand crime.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, a small crime, like a missing child. Um, And this is a later day. An early start as the days at our latitude are getting longer. Here in Edinburgh, we are a touch from 56 degrees north, so it is not hard to get up at 5 in the morning as even now the sky is beginning to lighten then. Of course, at midsummer it will barely get dark at night and it is possible to read outside at 11 p.m. I get up early to write. I am due to deliver the manuscript for the 21st volume in the Number 1 Ladies Detective Agency series by the end of May. So that already happened.
0: See, th- that impresses me not only because he's such, you know, a prolific writer, but also like, how do you come up with that many mysteries? Yeah, that's a lot. Because it's not like there's one mystery per book. There's like 25 mysteries in each book.
2: Maybe he slows down at like book six. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> all right, from now on, my problem, way is going to solve one per book? <laughs> um, and this is the last little bit from him. I have conversations through the ether with friends. We can see one another on the screen, and it feels as if we are together. I video chat with a friend, Edward Mendelssohn, a professor at Columbia, isolated in his New York apartment. We speak across mile upon mile of empty ocean. Proust said that steamships insulted the dignity of distance. How much a greater insult do our electronic gizmos conjure up? And yet, and yet, and yet. From city to city, from country to country, people reach out to one another. Amidst all the noise and suffering and loneliness, they smile and share stories and impressions and recommendations. All the things that bind us, the one to the other, in spite of everything. And I know we didn't love this book, but I was like, that reminds me of our podcast. Aw. We're doing something together, guys. It is true. Yeah. Yay. A moment of sincerity.
0: (laughs) Rare moment of sincerity for Tobin. Well... Number one, Ladies Detective Agency by Alexander McCall Smith. Three stars.
2: Are you going to keep it on your shelf?
0: You know, I'm not going to keep it on my shelf, especially because I listened to the audiobook. I'll just put it out. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, do you have a game for us? I do. Do Hooray.
1: you want to play a game? Yes. yes. Cool. Yeah, it was tough to come up with a game for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, so here's what we got Bailey actually gets credit for the assist on this because she mentioned to me in while we were texting before recording that both of these things had at least a tenuous relationship to HBO yes oh in that number one ladies detective agency has been adapted and uh pimp has a character inspired by iceberg slim in the deuce but also somebody attached to HBO also owns the rights I guess they just haven't done anything with it yet I found that out at one point but all right so the game is thanks HBO home box office um and I also give credit to my friend Jake Levitt who runs a movie trivia thing through syndicated bar theater and kitchen um virtually now of course and he always in his last round has sort of a creative way of asking questions which involves switching up the titles of things and then giving a description of that new thing so here's how the game's gonna work I'm going to give you a pitch for a TV show that I'm going to be pitching to you uh, the folks at HBO Home Box Office. Mm. And what that pitch is actually going to be made from is an actual show that they created with one letter missing.
0: Ooh, okay.
1: And I, I want you to tell me the name of that TV show. The kicker is that they're all, except for one, based on a book. Hmm. Okay. So here's what's going to happen. I'll give you the description. Whoever wants to buzz in can buzz in when they have the answer. If it's correct, you can also take a stab at what the title and author of the book that it's adapted from is and you will get a bonus point for that Mm. with a caveat that there's one that is not based on a book but i just i came up with something that made me laugh so i included it
0: okay can we buzz in as click ah you know like this hbo theme
1: dealer's choice on how you buzz in okay okay Cool. So are you, let's just jump right in. I don't have an example because it was hard to come up with these. I have five of them, so we should have a clear winner at the end. OK. Here's the first pitch. A defense attorney who shares a name with a musical instrument makes a living fighting for justice using their signature combative approach.
0: I, I just keep thinking of Perry Mason.
1: <laughs> yeah, now that you said it, me too. I'm cutting out the possibility for a bonus point and giving you the hint of Gillian Flynn.
0: Oh, harp objects.
1: Yeah, ha- what? How else could you? How else could you pronounce objects? Uh, harp obj. Harp Obos? Harp objects. <laughs> there you go. A defense attorney named Harp objects. Okay, this game could be long. <laughs> Good one, Bailey. I'm I'm happy for you to have that point. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay.
2: So,
0: okay, so the re- it's not there's no defense attorney in in sharp objects. Okay. okay I'm okay,
2: yeah, it. okay. I think I understood that. Okay. All
0: right, you're great. All right. So, yes,
1: Harp Objects is my new TV show. I like it. It's pretty good. Bailey, you get one to maybe just a half point for that, uh, yeah, but well, you I think point. Bailey gets that whole point. <laughs> All right, here's our next TV show. A moody drama series about who gets to eat the last piece of pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving. Triangle? A piece. Hmm. A portion? You have a lot of food and then and then there's some stuff.
0: left. left th- leftover. Leftover.
1: Leftover. Mm, you got it. There you go. It's called The Leftover. Bailey <laughs> gets one, one point. Oh, God. Um, this is, it's kind of fun, though. <laughs> I think maybe Bailey and I are collaborating yeah, on this fine. game a little bit more. <laughs> okay. You're solving this together. Yeah. I'm still going to give the point to Bailey. So, Bailey, you have two... <laughs> dubious points. Points, I guess. <laughs> two dubious points. Here's number three. This one I'm really proud of, so I hope you like it. Um, a children's series about a giant who can never get sick. Huge doctor. He'd be um, immune. Uh-huh. But uh, the the title is more of like a description of that, and you know might have something to do with a housing crisis and banks. The
0: big hort.
1: But, well okay so that's a movie not an hbo series
0: <laughs> accession
3: like, oh my god i know what it is but you
1: D- say andrew, it dylan D- go andrew, That not- in dylan dylan you can get the points <gasps> here is it too big to ale that's right oh. too, too big to ale that's <laughs> good <laughs> based on too big to fail by who dylan can you get the extra points oh
2: michael lewis, michael lewis? my dad <laughs> <I
1: don't know. laughs>
3: um is it it's not michael lewis it's um oh is it the other sorkin is andrew it andrew sorkin
1: yeah andrew sorkin okay dylan has two points and is Mm. i'm gonna say beating bailey right now because it's a less dubious point too big to fail
0: was a tv movie it wasn't a show that is
1: true i'm sorry yes sorry these are properties of hbo i should have said (laughs) the big hort (laughs) (laughs) it's maybe the big hort i never get sick (laughs) here's number four there's only two more of these listener um A series following a child's desperate attempts to get her distant parents to notice her by trying more and more dangerous stunts. So a child is trying to get her parents to notice her. This is definitely a series that it's based on. Evil Knievel. What? What's the one with Hugh Grant?
3: Done doing? Um,
1: Something that was sort of loosely adapted from a a comics author that we've had on the podcast before. Watchmen. Watch me. (gasps) There you go, Toby gets the yeah. point. Good job, well, Toby. Well, Bailey got the show. We'll we'll split that point. I'll take my half point.
3: But who
2: wrote it?
1: Alan Moore. Final one. I think this is a team effort here. It's 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 the three of you against me at this point. <laughs> um, a biopic about author Toni Morrison, focusing on her acceptance of a major award. Toni Morrison would have won the Nobel Prize, right? She did win the Nobel Prize. Okay, she won the Nobel Prize. Nobel.
0: Nobles the
1: Noble, noble. I don't know any HBO show with the, with the, with the with the something that sounds like noble in it.
0: Noble. Perry Mason.
1: <laughs> Perry Masonable While you think about that, I'm going to talk about a trip I might want to take to the Ukraine later.
0: Oh, K- Chernobyl. Ah,
1: Chernobyl.
0: Chernobyl.
2: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bailey, you just got the the alley oop. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, Andrew's <laughs>
1: giving it away with Clue. All right, Andrew, who won oh, that game? Oh, man. So I'm learning that that, that game is m- much more fun in a written pub quiz format <laughs> where you people can like table talk to each other. I'm glad we've had this experience together, and I'm so sad I have to edit this game. <laughs> you are all winners and losers at the same time.
0: Well, Andrew, you know what? Creative game. Creative yeah. game. Good I job. Ad- I actually really Thank enjoyed you. it. It was fun. Yeah. Team, team effort. All right. Well, uh, now's the time on the podcast where Dylan gets to shine. It is about Dylan now it is time for the, the choosing.
3: choosing. The choosing. I'm tired of trying to like think of wordplay stuff for each one of these titles, which we've never asked you to do. So I'm just <laughs> going to be frank with this. Uh, Andrew has number 27, Frankly in Love by David Yoon.
1: Oh, that's cool. I'm excited for this one. I
3: feel like it'll
1: be a very different than Pimp. Mm.
3: It will be. Well, I mean, sometimes Billy just needs to stop and smell the flowers that are located upstairs.
2: So it's time for The Name of the rose.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait, I figured out what it is. (laughs) She has number 34, Flowers in the Attic by B.C. Andrews. I'm
0: so excited.
3: I don't know. I feel like I've heard this title a
2: million times, right? Oh,
0: man. Oh, man. I have no idea
2: what it is, though.
0: Well, V.C. Andrews is, like, known for just, like, schlocky teen Whoa. stuff. Um, okay. and this was, like, really big in, like, the 80s or 90s. Flowers in the Attic is known for making a really, like, too exploitative um like lifetime movies um and it involves like a mother i believe locking her kids in the attic and the kids fall in love with each other
1: as in like siblings yeah (laughs) that is my understanding of it as
2: well
0: (laughs) (laughs) what i think it's gonna just be trash and i'm so excited
2: wow I'm excited too. I really want to
0: hear what you think about it. Cool. Okay, so next week on the podcast. <laughs> I just realized what the pairing exactly. is. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I will be reading VC Andrew's Flowers in the Attic and Toby is reading The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. <laughs> oh my
2: god. <laughs> Listeners, you wanted a dynamic podcast? You got a dynamic podcast. There <laughs> you go.
0: Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read List podcast at gmail dot com. Follow us on goodreads at goodreads.com slash the to List podcast. And on Instagram at the to read this podcast.
2: If you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and rate us five stars on whatever you can rate us five stars. Go on to Yelp and like create a fake restaurant for us and rate that five stars. That'd be great. Uh, But also do it on iTunes because we really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: And also, if you know anybody in your life who is bookishly inclined, let them know about our podcast. Word of mouth is still our best way of finding new listeners. And we'd really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Yay. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for recording our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading.
1: Books, 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 books.